The reading today is from Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed round his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the people and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride. He was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign 
over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds you in his hand, your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel parsin. This is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, do take a seat. And if you're visiting today, you'll have picked up, we're going through a little series in Daniel. It's our policy here to work through books of the Bible, chunk by chunk. And one of the wonders of that is it means when we come to a hard section like this, we can't duck it. It's much nicer to skip this chapter of judgment. But this is the word of God he's given to us this morning. So as we come to it, let's pray together for his help. Heavenly Father, you say in your word, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so, Father, we pray, help each one of us this morning to be a doer of your word. Help me to be clear. Help Jesus and his grace to be wonderfully real as we study this chapter of judgment. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let me begin by asking you a question. I'm going to set my timer so that we don't go on too long, and then I'll ask you a question. If I can work out how to use my watch. There we go. I'm too young for this watch, too old for this watch, it would seem. (laughs) Let me ask you a question. What did you do with last week's sermon? What did you do with last week's sermon? Have you, have I, merely been a listener to God's word, or have we been doers of it? If you weren't here last week... When you last heard God's word taught, when you last read the Bible, what did you do with it? Did you act out what God said to you? Or did you, in the busyness of life, forget it? It's a striking question. If you are here last week, you remember that King Nebuchadnezzar was dramatically humbled. He was the greatest king on earth. He was the ruler of the great Babylonian empire. But when his heart became proud, God humbled him until he acknowledged that the Most High rules the kingdoms of the earth. And then when he did, he was wonderfully restored, and God blessed him tremendously, and Nebuchadnezzar told the world about it. Each week on our service sheets, you probably notice we have a focus verse. Sometimes they don't line up quite so well with the sermon, but this week it really does encapsulate the message. It's verse 22. You knew all this, 
O Belshazzar, you knew all this, but you have not humbled yourself. We're introduced to this new king, Belshazzar, in verse 1. After Nebuchadnezzar died, a king called Nabonidus uh, became king. He was away from, uh, from Babylon for a great period of time, and so his son, probably Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, became the regent and then the king in his place. And it says his son here, but the word can mean descendant. This is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And although we're only just introduced to Belshazzar, by the end of the chapter, he's dead. He's a terrible warning of the folly of not doing God's word. And the warning is even more sober because it begins all so normally. The king is giving a dinner party much like our dinners for eight. Some of us will be going to a lunch party after this. Well, it's a slightly grander scale, not dinners for eight, but dinners for a thousand, verse one. And he's drinking with his nobles. And then verse two, he orders that the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem be brought in so that he and his guests might drink from them. But he doesn't just drink from them. Do you see verse 4? He uses them to praise idols, to praise the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron and wooden stone. It's a tremendous act of brazen defiance. Remember, if you're here, when we looked at chapter 1, that Nebuchadnezzar took those things from the temple and he put them in the temple of his God in Babylon. And it was a sense of saying, my God is better, more powerful than your God. But in a sense, there was some respect. These holy things went into a temple. But Belshazzar takes them out and defiles them. Doesn't just mock God, he provokes him by worshipping other idols with God's things. I wonder if we see the offence of this. We live in a society where God is openly mocked, don't we? Go and stand in the, uh, the queue at Countdown for a few minutes. And I almost guarantee you'll hear someone use God's name or Jesus' name as a swear word. But I wonder, do we see the shock? God doesn't have holy things in quite the same way he did in the Old Testament. Our communion cups that we have on communion Sundays, they're not holy in quite the same way that these cups are. But God does have holy things, doesn't he? Marriage is holy, holy matrimony. Life is holy. He puts his life into people. His church is holy, and breaking the unity of the church is a very serious thing to do. His word is holy, and chiefly his son, the Lord Jesus, is holy. And when those things are mocked or treated lightly, I wonder, do we feel the offense? If we don't, we're out of kilter with God. Because what happens when God is mocked? We see in verse 5, Suddenly, the fingers of human hand appear and write on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs give way. And we see again a mighty king humbled in an instant by God's intervention. And the last part of verse 6 is a generous translation. Literally, it says, the knots of his loins were loosed. And in front of all his guests, the hero of the party, the man with the swagger and bravado is suddenly like a toddler who's failed his potty training. Deeply humbling. God will not be mocked with impunity. Well, the king panics. 
He's desperate to find the meaning of the graffiti on his wall. He calls for his wise men. They come in, but as we've seen again and again, they're useless, unable to do anything. And the king becomes more terrified. Verse 9. Outside the room is the queen, or, or more likely the queen mother, possibly Nebuchadnezzar's wife. And she hears that the buzz has left the banquet. She comes in, tells the king about Daniel. Probably at this point, Daniel's about 80. And it looks like he was sidelined when Nebuchadnezzar died. But the queen mother remembers he's the one in whom dwell the holy, the, the spirit of the gods or the, the holy God. And so she said, call for Daniel. Well, Daniel comes in. He's offered a great reward, third place in the kingdom, if he'll read the writing. And we see verse 17. He refuses the reward, but he offers the meaning. And he begins by putting things into context. We see in verses 18 to 21, the story of last week retold. And we see Nebuchadnezzar's greatness. And what a greatness it is, verse 19. All the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. That's no exaggeration. Babylon was the greatest empire on the earth, at the t- uh, in the known world at the time. And Nebuchadnezzar was the pinnacle of it. But do we see why he's great? Look at verse 18. He has that greatness because the Most High God gave it to him. The Most High God gave your father sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. It was all a gift. And if you hear here last week, you'll remember it was when Nebuchadnezzar went on the roof of his palace and looked out over Babylon and said, all this was done by my power, for my majesty, that he was humbled. We see that explained in verse 20. When his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. You remember, he was, ter- he was given the mind of a cow, struck down with an illness that made him think he was a cow. He spent seven years eating grass in the palace gardens until he acknowledged that God rules, that he's the one sovereign over the kingdoms of heaven. And then wonderfully, he was restored And we need to see this chapter of judgment in the context of grace. Nebuchadnezzar was blessed and restored. But here comes the punch. Verse 22. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Belshazzar was probably a boy at the time Nebuchadnezzar went through this experience. Quite possibly he saw his grandfather in the palace gardens eating grass like a cow. But even if he hadn't seen it firsthand, he would have surely read the great testimony that was sent out as a royal circular from Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Belshazzar knew this, but he did nothing. Well, we've whizzed through this chapter so far, but I want to slow down now and highlight three things from the last little chunk. The first is this, the dreadful privilege of hearing the word of God, the dreadful privilege of hearing the word of God. And if you want a kind of action point to go under that, it's this. Be a doer, not just a hearer of the word. Be a doer, not just a hearer of the word. I was once uh, at a church, and Vaughan Roberts, who many of you seem to know from his visits to New Zealand, was uh, slated to speak. And as he got up into the pulpit, I guess he sensed that people weren't really listening. So he said this. Friends, I'm about to perform a miracle Suddenly, the word miracle, everyone perked up. So he said again, I'm going to perform a miracle. Suddenly, he had the whole room 
And he said this, in just a moment, the holy God is going to speak to each one of us through a sinful man. That's true, isn't it? That's what's happening now. God, the holy God, speaking through his word. And the wonderful privilege of the scriptures is that whenever they're opened, whenever they're read, whenever they're faithfully taught, God speaks to his people. That's quite difficult in some ways as a preacher to say that. Sounds like I'm blowing my own trumpet. It's nothing to do with me or my skill or my prayers or my godliness or lack of godliness. It's because that's what God has promised to do through his word. And it's a wonderful privilege. And we don't just hear, but as God works by his word, his spirit comes, doesn't he? And that spirit offers us life, changes us. And that's exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar as he heard the warning in the dream. He didn't just hear God's voice. He found God's grace to change him. And I take it in heaven, we will see Nebuchadnezzar, the man who was a megalomaniac, a proud man, but who heard and then did God's word, humbled himself and was saved. It's a tremendous privilege to hear the word of God, but it's a dreadful privilege. A dreadful privilege because we hear the word of God. The word of God. And because it's the word of God, we cannot just ignore it. I had a friend, and he and I at university were sat in a bar, and I dared to tell him something of the gospel. I said, do you realize you're a sinner? That Jesus longs that you would turn to him and be saved. Humble yourself and believe in Jesus. And he shot back, well, what about those who've never sat in a bar and heard their friend tell them about Jesus? And I tried to tell him something is God's justice, his love for the world. And he shot back, I think really is to parry, not to engage, just to parry. He said, uh, well, it would have been better for you not to tell me. It would be better for me never to have heard of Jesus. Well, in a sense, there's a man who understands the dreadful privilege of hearing the word of God. He's both right and wrong. Of course, there he hears the gospel. There, Jesus invites him to bow the knee and find salvation. He could have been saved there and then in that bar. But it's a dreadful privilege because he doesn't reject me. He rejects the living Christ and spurns him. Well, friends, in a country where every Christmas we sing of a saviour, People all through the land listen to songs of Jesus on the radio. What a dreadful privilege we have. One Puritan said, Every sermon either brings us closer to heaven or it brings us closer to hell. There's no such thing as a neutral sermon. They bring us close to heaven or close to hell, which is why I began as I did. What do we do with last week's sermon? What will we do with this week's sermon? It's a dreadful privilege. But let's be doers and not hearers of God's word. Well, then secondly, we see a disastrous opposition. A disastrous opposition. And here's the action point of this. Be humble, not proud. Let's be humble, not proud. Belshazzar knew of uh, God's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. But instead of humbling himself, look what he did, verse 23. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. We've considered the way he did it with that blasphemous toast to the idols. But we see at the end of verse 23 what he didn't do. You did not honor the God who holds you in his hand and your life and all your ways. 
And when they're unmasked, they're terrifying, aren't they? Belshazzar sets himself up against God, against the Lord of heaven. It's a disastrous opposition. It's like trying to attack a tank with a pea shooter. Madness. And yet, tragically, we see it all around us, don't we? Think of someone like Richard Dawkins, very clearly setting himself up against the living God. But for so many others, it's less the obvious antagonism as much as the refusal to honour God, refusal to give thanks that our life, our breath, everything we have is a gift from his hand. Well, it amounts to the same thing, whether it's very blatant or rather just the omission of thanks, we find ourselves God's enemies fighting against a dreadful opponent. But it'd be easy, wouldn't it, to wag our finger at the world outside. Actually, we need to engage ourselves here. I take it we love to hear God's word. That's why we're here. But the danger is we love to hear it. We love to debate it. We love to think theologically, maybe. But the question is, do we do it? Do we love the word of God to penetrate our hearts, even when it's painful, as it exposes our sin? Do we love to find the grace that changes us? Or do we hear from him and then ignore it and find ourselves set up against the Lord of heaven? Friends, I'm going to be pretty blunt here. This is serious stuff. There's a dead body on the floor at the end of this chapter, and it would be remiss of me not to apply this carefully. And I take it, I don't know many of you well, but I take it you know that I love you and I love St. Stephen's. And so if what I say is clumsy and you're offended, then if it's my clumsiness, I apologize. But if God prods you, then please don't be cross with me. Go to him. Because God's aim and my aim in, in what I'm about to say is not to condemn, quite the opposite. God longs we'd be humbled and find a, a new restoration, a new joy of our salvation like Nebuchadnezzar found. There are many ways, aren't there, to set ourselves up against God. One way is to think of ourselves too highly. On Thursday, Charlie and I watched a biography of Steve, a biography film of Steve Jobs, founder of Apple Computers. And Steve Jobs was famously known for having a reality distortion field. He wouldn't believe reality was as he saw it. And that enabled him to create fantastic products. People would say, it can't be done. And he'd say, no, it is. It will be done. And he makes the iPod and so on. But when it comes to personal matters, Steve Jobs' reality distortion field led him badly astray. He was a man who had cancer and wouldn't believe it, felt that if he'd eat vegetables, he'd be cured. He was a man who couldn't believe he didn't win Time Man of the Year. He was insistent. For decades, he must have been sabotaged. Well, all of us have, to a later, greater or lesser degree, a reality distortion field. We assume we're right. I'm the most balanced person in this room. Everyone else is extremists. Let me ask you, when was the last time you changed your mind? Because a humble person's able to change their mind, aren't they? When was the last time you said sorry? Not a sorry but, sorry, but you made me mad, it's really your fault. Not a, I'm sorry you got upset, I'm sorry for the consequences, which is really no sorry at all, is it? When did we say sorry? Put our hands in the air and say, you know what, I got it wrong, I'm sorry, I messed up. 
proud man, proud woman can't do that. When was the last time we felt free not to air our opinion or to insist upon our preference? To my embarrassment, on Friday in a staff meeting, somebody asked me, can you give a yes or a no to this? Very simple, all I needed to say, yes or no. And for some reason, I decided to give my opinion. And 40 minutes later, I was still giving my opinion. And I could spin that in all kinds of ways. Well, you hadn't quite seen it from this point of view. You hadn't seen the big picture. But actually, my opinion wasn't needed. And lurking underneath that's an ugly pride. My opinion needs to be heard. I'm the assistant minister. I've been at this church for 50 years. I give more money than most. So my opinion must be heard. It's very subtle, isn't it? Creeps in, and then we find our preferences frustrated. We get cross because it's not done our way. We begin to say, I'm happy to do that, but only if I'm the leader. Someone told me this week of two people who won't serve together because they disagree about each other's preferences. I'm sure it's a very complicated situation, but it's deeply on the surface, deeply sad two brothers or brother and sister who can't serve together because they've got different preferences. And what that attitude does is breed entitlement, isn't it? We begin to forget that we're just dust, dust of the earth, filled with the living breath of God. And we begin to think that God owes us one. Oh God, look at all the things I'm doing. You've let me down. How deeply arrogant. Well, the great antidote is to praise him, to do what Belshazzar refused to do, to give him thanks, to honor him, to recognize that he is God and we are not. Well, one way to set ourselves up against God is to think too highly of ourselves. Another is to, to think too highly of other things, and we begin to worship something else other than God. Jesus says, doesn't he, where your treasure is, your heart is. Just worth thinking, what is our treasure? I guess in part it's our money, but in a time-poor society, our time is our treasure. Just think for a moment, where do you put the treasure of your time in the kingdom of God? I'm struck that the Bible never envisages a churchless Christian. The idea that we could go to ch not go to church and be Christians is, a, is an anomaly of the 21st to 20th century, when enlightenment takes part. I can just be a Christian on my own with my Bible. The Bible never understands that. Christianity is a community project. We should be together serving, together challenging each other, together listening to his word. And of course, sometimes we can't make it to whatever group it is we belong to. Can't make it here. But I take it there's a difference between the solo parent struggling to make ends meet or the sick person, the frail person, who'd love to be here but just can't because their body's giving up, than the person who wakes up and says, it's a sunny day, I think I'll go for a walk. And that person may well say, well, this is the way I worship God. Which, when you think about it, is a fascinating phrase. This is the way I worship God. But do we ask how God wishes to be worshipped? I stumbled across these words yesterday, and they're pretty damning words of John Calvin. He's talking about those who feel they don't need to come to church or listen to preaching, and he says this, 
Those who neglect or despise church and the preaching of God's words choose to be wiser than Christ who commands us to gather. Striking, isn't it? Choosing to be wiser than Christ. If that's not setting ourselves up against God, I don't know what it is. Or before we move on, think about money. Do we have an open-handed policy towards our money? Do we think everything I have is his gift? As I know many of us do, actually. I think we're a generous congregation. But do we think our money is his? And if I can give it back to him, it's my joy to return what he's freely given me. Or do we subtly think it's my money I earned and I'll use it as I please? Subtly, even though he prompts us, we find we're not honoring him with our money. I'm reminded of C.T. Studd's father. C.T. Studd's father was converted under D.L. Moody, and he was in his, I think, 40s or 50s. He was a man of the world, and he said to D.L. Moody, do I need to give up all these things, give up horse racing and parties and balls and all the kind of things Christians in the 19th century thought were sins? D.L. Moody, Moody very wisely said to him, you need to give up gambling, because I can't see how a Christian can gamble. But all the other things, you're free. Do them to the glory of God. Then he said, get a taste of winning souls. Get a taste of building God's kingdom with your money. And you'll never go back. The luster of the party, the luster of uh, the great house will lose its thrill. And C.T. Studd's father became a great worker in the kingdom. I wonder, do we have that same passion? Do we know the thrill of building his kingdom? Well, friends, I've labored this point because I think it's so important. As we're about to see, there's a dead body on the floor. It's so easy to set ourselves up against God, but it's a disastrous opposition. Let's choose to humble ourselves and not be proud. Well, our time's nearly gone. Very briefly. Third point, a dead body. Dead body. Choose life not death. Choose life, not death. Verse 24, therefore, because you refuse to humble yourself, God sent the hand that wrote the inscription. Wrote many, many, tekel, parson. They're units of currency. It's like having $20, $20, $10, $5 written on the wall. This looks like a receipt. It doesn't make any sense. No wonder no one could understand it. But Daniel, with the spirit of the holy gods, does. And he says, the translation, the, the meaning, verse 26, Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, the singular of Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And with that, Daniel's interpretation is crystal clear. And the fulfillment comes that very night. Verse 30, that very night. Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. As this great blasphemous banquet's going on, it seems that the Medo-Persian Empire had their troops around Babylon. Presumably, Belshazzar thought that Babylon was impregnable, but Darius, the great tactician, diverts the river away from Babylon. The river level goes down, and his army marches through, and there's a bloodless coup the Babylonian Empire falls. The only person dead is Belshazzar. Friends, do we see the horror of this? The seriousness of this? Belshazzar had ample opportunity to repent. 
God kindly warned him through his father, warned him through that hand, and yet he failed to act, and now it's too late. Well, in the same way, each of us too will be have these words written over us. Many, many tackle parson. Our days are numbered. Could be tonight. Could be on the way home. And then we'll be weighed in God's scales and judgment will fall. And yet it's not yet. Wonderfully, it's not yet. Wonderfully, we can choose life, not death. Because wonderfully, in his great love, God sent his son into the world. His son who didn't need ever to be numbered amongst men and yet he enters and lives a life and then chooses to die to be numbered amongst men and as he dies god weighs him not with his sins upon him but the sins of the world the sins of you the sins of me and god looks down on that sin that horrible pride and jesus is divided his body is torn he endures god's wrath so we don't need to. So that any who trusts in him, though we'll be weighed, though we'll die, will never be judged, will never be punished. Friends, there's a dead body on the floor. It's a dead body that never need be there if only Belshazzar had listened and then done what God said. Well, what will we do? What will we do? What will we do with what God has said to us this morning? This very night, our lives could be demanded from us. Are we ready to be weighed? What do we need to be put right? Where do we need to find Jesus' wonderful grace and might Nebuchadnezzar be restored? Let's make sure it can never be said of us, but you, O St. Stephen's, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. God forbid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long that each one of us would be a doer of your word, that where you've shown us our pride, we'd run to Jesus and find grace and forgiveness. Please have mercy on us, dear Father. For his name's sake, amen.